Hello and welcome to the Latest Science Sport Podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Carr. So Kevin is a partner of Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning where he tours the globe teaching thousands of coaches MBSC's training systems. In addition to that, he's recently published a book, Functional Training Anatomy, which means he's the perfect person today to discuss how we can improve health and longevity in the gym. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Kevin onto the show. So Kevin, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us. So can you just a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah. So I've been a strength conditioning coach at Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning in the Boston area since 2008. Uh, I also work as a massage therapist. I have a massage clinic called Movement is Medicine located right next door to the gym. And I run the Certified Functional Strength Coach Certification for Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning. So we travel around and provide practical, hands-on education to personal trainers, strength conditioning coaches, and physical therapists so they can better scale and deliver the training if they want to train to a diverse population. Absolutely. So that, that covers a lot of different kind of areas of health, right? It's not yeah. just not just one kind of thing. All right, we're going to be gym and big and strong. It's like, let's let's look at that holistic picture and, and see what's going on with the, with the person as opposed to just sets, reps, heavy stuff done. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. I've seen our practice at MBSC really change. When I started in 2008, we were really a sports performance facility. Um, we had maybe a sprinkling of general population clientele, but now, you know, about 60% of our revenue is driven from the everyday person our adult group training, our one-on-one or small group personal training. And so we've kind of sh- really shifted our approach, our message, and how we program, not just for the athletes, still a large part of our our business, but also for the everyday person. And so it's kind of driven a lot of my attention to servicing those people. I mean, they come coming in with the problems that the everyday person has, whether it's metabolic issues, whether it's joint issues, issues that come with aging. And so our approach has kind of come to met that need that that we've started to see in our in our business absolutely so we, we want to see touch on a load of those things later and yeah you can can kind of get into the depths of how you train those people as opposed to athletes but what do you think are then the, the key differences between people in the general population who come in and they, they want to be happy healthy compared to the the athletes who are there to really you know like really drive change and really push the, the envelope in that sense yeah, I mean, the athletes are training is like a means to an end in that, you know, we typically see our athletes for maybe three or six months out of the year. I mean, the professional or college athletes, we typically see from June through August, right? And we have a set goal, something we're preparing them for. Training is part of their daily regimen. Whereas with our general population clientele, I have people I've seen now for, you know, 15 years consistently. And so your training kind of ages and progresses along with them. And it's about keeping it sustainable for them and entertaining for them as well, for them to consistently want to come back and developing the long-term relationships. And so you're thinking about a much more long-term approach um, in how you manage uh, a person and how you manage a program versus, you know, seeing people in maybe three to six months stints like you might see in the athletic development world. And in terms of goals, obviously, that I imagine there's a lot of similarities in those goals, but yeah, I can also imagine that some general population people are less motivated to maybe reach the top level of, of athleticism compared to someone who's a, an, 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 an NBA player or an, a pitcher in, uh, in baseball, for example. Yeah, I mean, uh, the truth is when you're working with general population, a large part of your business is going to be fueled by what you call like the check the box clients. 
right? Like these are people who are going to come in consistently two or three days a week. And they're not necessarily always interested in getting stronger all the time or pushing themselves, but they want to be healthy. They feel good when they exercise. They enjoy coming and the experience of coming to the facility. Um, and honestly, they're just training to continue to feel good so they can go about their activities of daily living and maybe play the recreational sport they want to play or be able to get through their workday and not feel like crap at the end after sitting in a chair all day. And so you have to kind of adjust your mindset as a coach and realize that so much of the time training with those individuals is about building the relationship. So they just want to keep coming back and they can get kind of that minimal effective dose, so to speak, where they're going to lift a little bit, they're going to throw and jump and hop a little bit, and they're going to strain their cardiovascular system, um, you know, two or three days a week and, and just getting them to consistently come and, and realizing that, you know, they might not necessarily be as interested in, you know, improving their deadlift or, you know, improving their bench press as maybe, you know, that competitive athlete is, and that's okay. Um, because what we're trying to do is just deliver consistent training to them that's going to help them be healthier and, and active for a longer period of time. So obviously, when when we look at things like health and, and performance, to take the performance side out of things, um, it, it seems as though, and there's, a, there's obviously a lot of news articles to back it up, like the world is becoming less healthy, less um uh, let's say less focused on nutrition, less focused on their the physical wellness and their mental uh, might suffer with that. So can you speak as to why you think that that is the case with, for example, rising obesity rates, despite potentially everyone having the knowledge to, to, to counteract that? Yeah, the, the irony is we have more access to the knowledge um, about how to exercise well and how to take care of yourself than ever before. But that's also really as a result of the technical revolution. And on the other side of that, like as we saw you know, the technical revolution, the advent of personal computers, personal phones, start to become more and more common, you can see a step change in people's health and behavior because of that. Um, our daily activities um, and our daily work doesn't require us to move <laughs> nearly as much as we um, ever used to. Um, life has gotten more and more convenient, right? Um, I can order food. I can never leave my house if I want. I could work from here. I could order food from my phone. I could do everything from sitting in this chair right here. That wasn't the reality for our parents. And so they had physical activity baked into their everyday. Maybe you had to walk to catch a bus. Maybe you had to walk on your commute. Uh, you had to go outside of your house more frequently and do things. And now we've had to essentially, as personal trainers and fitness people, fitness routines are actually really popular. You see the investment in fitness is actually going up, yet people aren't necessarily getting healthier. And because they aren't getting physical activity in their daily, in their daily routines, they're not walking as much. Their step counts are down. And so... Um, despite us, you know, having more health information, us thinking, Hey, the coaching and fitness products and services that we have out are better than ever. We're still not reaching enough people and getting them to move. And so I think sometimes the conversation goes outside of, you know, what we need to do in the gym and what we can try to get people to do in their daily lives. Even some of my clients, despite the fact that they might come see me two or three days a week, they're getting less physical activity in their day than they might've, you know, five or 10 years ago. And so talking to them about things to do outside, like being able to walk or choosing to take the stairs, all those things seem small. Those movement snacks add up over time. And I think those are just becoming less and less common for people. Um, and obviously food availability is much higher um, than it ever was. And so people have access to nutrient, uh, like calorically dense foods, I should say, um, easier than ever. And so it becomes the 
uh, two sides of that coin. It's easier to eat more and it's a lot easier to move less uh, than it ever has been. And obviously those things add up to, um, yeah, increasing in weight, for example, and all of the things that, that come with that. Um, but when it does then come to physical training, so let's say you're, you've got to the stage where like, you know what, I appreciate that my everyday life is, is maybe not as active as it could be. I want to do something about it. How do you get then into physical training? What, what kind of methods should people be choosing and can people choose? And what are the considerations that they might make when making those choices? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, this is really common in strength, conditioning and personal training, you know, the Twitter discussions, the online discussions, we can argue about good, better and best as far as exercise selection and application. Um, but at the end of the day, whatever is most accessible and allow people to be consistent from an overall health standpoint is the most important thing. Um, I think the best laid program is useless if someone isn't going to, going to do it. And so lots of times with my clients. Luckily, if they're coming to me, then they already probably think like, hey, I want to strength train. Um, but within that, you know, figuring out what approach is going to allow them to do it most consistently. I would rather you come in consistently twice a week and do something that is a little bit more moderate and regressed than, you know, you thinking every time like, ah, oh, crap, I got to go see Kevin again and work out. Um, and, and not really enjoy the experience because long-term you probably won't commit to it. And I've made mistakes with that early in my career where I thought like, this is what I think this person needs to do. But for them, from their perspective, um, they probably didn't enjoy it. So sometimes bending your selection as a coach towards them, at least early on in the process, will, will get them there. And I think, you know, our value as coaches, people who believe in strength training or functional training is that if we can develop really good relationships and develop trust with the people that we're working with, then we can start to bend them towards the direction of what we think best practices, right? Um, because they start to think, okay, this person has my best interest in mind. I'm willing to work a little bit harder. I'm willing to, you know, try some of the things that they're trying to get me to do. Um, Cause you imagine like the general population person off the street who doesn't have much exercise experience, you know, walks into MBSC for the first time and, there's music playing, there's a bunch of athletes working out, there's jerseys on the wall, it's an intimidating experience. And then you take them into that training program. And it's probably unlike anything that they've experienced, right? They're going to foam roll and stretch, they're going to warm up, they're going to throw med balls, they're going to skip and jump, jump and hop, and they're going to be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> and getting them to, you know, be comfortable in that environment take, means taking baby steps. At our At our staff meeting this week, we had a big conversation about like putting ourselves in the shoes of a beginner. Like, what does it feel like to come into this place for the first time? And for us, it's just our everyday life. Like I, I, I it's like walking into cheers from the TV show. Yeah. Um, everyone says hello. Everyone's happy to see you. Yeah. Everybody knows your name. Right. And, but for the average person walking in, they're like, Oh my God. And it can be overwhelming. And so I think bringing ourselves kind of down to their level and, and making it as accessible early on gets buy-in. And then we can start to get them to do what we think is best practice. So whether it's mobility work every day, doing some power work, strength training, cardiovascular work, a well-rounded, you know, functional training program, as we would term it, I think is what I would identify as best practice. But sometimes we have to kind of bend it towards the client's expectation and that old saying, you know, meet them where they're at to kind of get them to move that direction. 
Absolutely excellent. So when, when we take those things into consideration, you've mentioned a few different types of training. So you've got, mm-hmm. uh, for example, you're going to do mobility stuff. You're going to do some strength training, some cardiovascular work. Are there any things that you think, you know what, that's either overrated or that's probably where people shouldn't be beginning when it comes to, to health and fitness? I think maybe, maybe things like 95% power lifts, for example, or yeah. I don't know. Are there any things that you're like, you know what, just stay away from that until you've really got the basics now? Yeah, generally with most, you know, regular everyday people, general population clients, they're not going to touch a barbell. Um, and I know to like some of the strength training traditionalists, they're, they're probably slamming their hands on the table listening to that. But in reality, like an entry level program for us looks a lot like, you know, a kettlebell deadlift, goblet squat, a split squat, a reaching body weight, single leg deadlift, um, some dumbbell rows or or TRX based rows, and some work with like a Kaiser machine, like press outs or chops and lifts, like really the basics and getting them brilliant at that. And you're, it's really kind of amazing how much mileage you can get out of a really basic program with the everyday client who comes in to see you um, for long periods of time for them to start to build basic movement skills, basic strength capacity, basic cardiovascular health before we start to take that next step. I think, you know, in fitness is always this thing where the average person is really attracted to the extremes um, because they see it right. Fitness is unlike anything else in that they, the average person sees it on TV, sees it on social media, sees it in magazines. And they're always seeing like the the most jacked person, the strongest person. They think, oh, I'm going to do that. In reality, you're not going to do that. And so being <laughs> able to... harsh words right there. Yeah. But <laughs> you're just not going to do that. It's, it's the truth. And so yeah. getting them to understand like, hey, like my program's really boring. I do a lot of the same stuff every day in and out, but that's generally what makes people successful long-term is a commitment to doing those basic things really well. And I know that's not necessarily exciting, but that's, that's the truth of, of doing this for years and years at a time. I think that's, uh, that's very, very good and wise advice, of course. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned strength training. So what does, what's the role of strength training in, in longevity then? So if we're, if we're looking for general health and, and happiness for a long time, how does strength training play a role in that? And, and how does that then change for, for example, someone who's 30, who's for the first time worried about their health and they've gone, oh, that was a little bit difficult walking up those stairs all the way through to like the 90 year old who's going, yeah, I want to, I want to work with my, my great grandkids on the floor and get up and down and do all those great things. Yeah. I think of all modes of exercise, there's no um, way to train that provides a bigger upside in a lot of categories than resistance training, right? We know that strength training, um, reduces all cause mortality in older adults. We know that grip strength is directly associated with improved cardiovascular health outcomes, better outcomes for people who are suffering from diabetes. We know it lowers um, chronic inflammatory markers. We know it has an impact on depression. Um, And we know we can get a cardiovascular benefit from it. There's very few interventions that you can provide that provide larger upside than strength training. Obviously, improvements in bone density, improvements of activity of daily living, um, for people as they get older, like you mentioned. And so for us, that's the heart um, of our entire program. Um, and, you know, they always say it's strength and conditioning coach. And like, we definitely favor the strength end of things. But I think that, I mean, if, if I can start to get, you know, the even the younger kids, we know that if they invest in strength training in a young age, maybe they're doing it for sports performance. We know that as they get older, the muscle mass and bone density that they um, develop at a young age is things that they carry with them 
um, into their older age, right? And they, they're not necessarily thinking about what they're going to be at 40, 50, 60 years old. But I always kind of smile when I see the kids training because I know the long-term benefit that they start to develop, not only the habit building, but the actual physical development that they get from that at a young age carries on with them um, to, you know, you know, you think about our people in our adult program, our younger adults who are, you know, in their 30s or 40s who, you know, you want to be able to maintain that muscle mass. We know once we get north of like 35, it gets harder and harder to build and maintain muscle mass as we get into our later years. And so I was telling them we want to pack on as much as we can now, because in reality, once you get into your fifties and sixties, you're taking, that's what you're taking with you. Um, and I have clients in my seventies and eighties who are still lifting, um, twice a week, consistently pushing sleds, doing split squats, doing goblet squats, um, doing pushups, doing dumbbell bench. And for them, I look at them and I think like, that's who I want to be when I'm that age. These people that I work with, Generally, they're very active, they're traveling, they're spending time with their grandkids, they're taking on new activities, they're not necessarily scared to do it. And so strength training, I, they always say, if you could pick one, I would tell people to lift weights because you have the highest upside, it checks the most boxes as far as, you know, uh, overall impact on our health, uh, more so than pretty much anything else that we can provide. And, and when it comes to then looking at exercises, for example, you mentioned a few already, mm -hmm. um, are there any exercises that you particularly lean towards, especially when people start to, to get a little bit older, start to, to advance in years? Uh, maybe they have little mm -hmm. grumpy shoulders or hips, which don't quite do what they used to do. Yeah. All of those good things. Are there, are there any exercises that you particularly look towards or types of movement, which you think, oh, you know what? That's really big bang for buck stuff. Yep. I think that, especially for some of my older populations, I'm still kind of prioritizing unilateral based work. And it, I mean, it could be body weight, like resistance training is, you know, it could, your resistance could be your own weight, but I think, especially as you get older, we know after 60, you know, your biggest risk for death is an accidental fall, generally speaking. And so, um, it, it's really kind of scary when you see some people come in who are, you know, 60, 70 years old, and they can't even stand on one foot for 10 seconds. And you, I, you always think like, I hate to see where they're going to be five to 10 years from now. And so some things as simple as split squats, reaching single leg deadlifts. Maybe we start to add a weight to that. Um, maybe you get to single leg squats, start to develop, you know, multi-planar hip stability, single leg strength and improve their vestibular system. I've seen people who couldn't stand on one leg who are now doing single leg deadlift with like a 20 kilo bell in their hand at 60. And to me, I think like, you know, I, I, that's someone who hopefully can live independently for a long period of time. Most people are really afraid of that back slope where you lose your independence, but you're still alive. It's usually, you know, not a fun experience for people at that age. And so I always think prioritizing lower body strength, trying to do it unilaterally if possible, but goblet squats are a big piece of that as well. Um, and then just simply, can they get up and down off the ground? Um, you see some people who are, you know, older and their ability to simply, if they're on the turf in the gym and ask them to stand up, you watch them and you think like, that doesn't look easy for you. And to me, that doesn't necessarily mean doing something like a Turkish getup. It might be as simple as pairing standing-based exercises with ground-based exercises. So they're forced to get up and down off the ground, you know, multiple times within the workout in thinking about that as part of the program. Um, so you kind of sneak that in, in your creative programming at the same time. And so um, I just try to think about like, what do I want my parents to be able to do? You know, they're, you know, 64, 65 years old. What, I, what do I want them to be able to do? Um, with my daughter as she gets older and like, how would I program for them?
I think it's a, a really, a really wise question to ask yourself as well, because it changes yeah. that, that perspective. Oh, that's just a person coming in and I'm going to give yeah. them some training to, oh yeah. What if I really looked after that person? What would be the, the first thing that I'm going to, going to get them to do? But with, with those things in mind, the flip side of that, then are there any things that you think oh, people should probably be staying away from that or yeah, any uh, maybe movements or techniques, methods that you think, yeah, probably as you get older, get rid of those in favor of the ones you've just mentioned. Yeah. As people get older, I definitely get um, a little bit more cautious around heavy, any heavier impact based activities. Um, with that said, we're still doing like plyometric or lower body power type drills, like skipping and jumping, but I'm much more hesitant for things like hopping where they're jumping, hopping off one leg and landing on the same leg, um, higher impact plyometric things. Generally they don't tolerate, um, because of years of maybe deteriorating joint health changes in tissue quality. They don't, they're not going to tolerate impact the way a younger uh, trainee or athlete might. Um, additionally, like heavy, more heavily loaded bilateral exercises. We'll goblet squat and we'll push that, but um, heavily loaded deadlifts, um, barbell loaded squats, Olympic lifts, things like that will generally pull out of the program for anybody that's older. Um, just because you start to look at that risk versus reward. And I always think like if they get hurt in training, that could start to set them back uh, pretty significantly. And we, again, I always think about like consistency, like if I can find a tool to con continue to train them and get them better and keep that, get them healthy and keep them healthy that I can use that I could favor over something that might potentially cause a problem that might keep them out of the gym for a day, a week, a month, so to speak, that I'm going to always make that kind of more cautious decision in, in my exercise selection. I say it sounds a lot then like you're, you're being, yes, cautious, but obviously playing that, that long game where you're like, yeah. you know what, if they got injured now and we lost, I don't know, uh, 10 training sessions, yeah. then actually that's this five weeks worth of work potentially. And if we had those 10 training sessions back, actually we, we could have worked at 80% and that 80% would have added up to way more than missing those sessions. Exactly. So when, when it comes then to, to writing a program or to, to programming for people with uh, uh, advancing years, let's put it nicely, um, what, what, kind of, what kind of program are we looking at? What, what if, I, if I walked into the gym tomorrow with you, what are you going to program me if I'm, let's say, uh, yeah, 40, 50, 60 years old and you go, oh, you know what, a little bit of aches and pains. Talk, talk us through how you're going to address those situations. Yeah, we always say, um, with, especially with our adult clients, we say to our coaches, Functional training is a recipe, not a menu. And so we kind of follow that same recipe with maybe changes in proportion. And so when they come in, we're going to get everyone to do some sort of mobility work, getting onto a foam roller, starting to reduce that resting tissue tone. Generally, it's going to create, you know, what I always say is like a neurological window of opportunity for them to move and feel a little bit better. That's going to be about a five minute investment. And then some sort of full body mobility. As people get older, I'll start to invest a little bit more time in my with my population in that period of the workout. So whether it's ankle mobility, hip mobility, T-spine, shoulder, cervical, especially for some of our older clients, something as simple as like neck rolls, getting them to invest, you know, five to 10 minutes in, in that type of work right off the bat. And we program it in because in reality, uh, they're probably not going to do it on their own. And so if they can get it yeah. forced fed to them the two or three days a week, they see us. We're making sure that they're at least getting that. Um, and then we're going to get into some sort of active warm-up, right? And so um, this becomes also increasingly important for our older populations because it takes them a little bit longer to get the engine going. The tissue needs to get warmed up to get a little bit more elasticity. So 
some body weight based exercises. Typically I'll have them squat. I'll have them hinge. Um, I'll have them lateral squat, um, to get their hips moving in a variety of directions. And then I like to get into like a dynamic warmup, whether that's, you know, kind of like what we do with our athletes, skipping, shuffling, karaoke. I always think in a warmup, I want them to move forwards, move backwards, move sideways and to rotate. Um, you realize as people get, get older, their movement world gets smaller, right? Everything is like they sit up from their chair, they walk to their breakfast table, they walk and sit in their car, they walk to their desk. They never move outside of going forward. And so yeah. bringing back kind of the neurological ability to cross the midline and rotate and have that coordination, it's amazing with the adults. At first they feel silly, but then you see them laughing, they're having fun, and you're kind of bringing them back to being a kid again. So whether that's like a dynamic warm-up where you're skipping and shuffling or using something like a ladder drill and just having them go and do crossover, one-two stick, forwards, backwards, getting them to move in a variety of directions, you check the warm-up box, you warm them up, get their nervous system going, but then they also have fun. And I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then we're always going to do some sort of uh, light implement power, we term it. So throwing a med ball, usually a best friend for a general population client, they can move it fast, move it hard with low injury risk. So we're doing things like side tosses, chest passes, slams, whatever the variety we might choose for that day with some sort of, you know, lower impact, lower body power, whether it's a box jump, uh, a power skip, a hurdle jump, um, a bound, something that they can start to work on their ability to not only accelerate forcefully, but in control deceleration, their ability to land and stabilize. Usually stability focused plyometrics, we're going to have them stick the landing. Um, and that usually takes us to about 25 minutes or so. And then we head into the weight room and it's pretty much always going to be a full body approach with people who are coming two or three days a week. We're going to favor really like a full body approach where they're going to do you know, hip dominant, a knee dominant, a push, a pull, and some core based exercise. And we're going to spread that out typically over, you know, three tri-sets or pair or pairings um, in the workout. So the way it works in our gym is, you know, they come in, maybe they do goblet squats or kettlebell swings paired with, you know, some sort of core based exercise, maybe some active rest and mobility work to kind of feed some more of that stuff into the program. They'll get into some sort of main lift, whether it's, you know, a dumbbell bench or an incline dumbbell bench, a split squat, some rows, really kind of the meat of the lift right there. And then afterwards, another kind of pairing or triset where it might be something like farmer carries, um, some work with the Kaiser chops and lifts and press outs to get some trunk work. And then in that final kind of 10 minute to 12 minute piece of the program, we're typically going to do some sort of cardiovascular conditioning. And um, depending on the clientele, maybe if they don't tolerate impact well, um, the Airdyne bike is, you know, kind of our best friend. We have a whole bunch of them. Most people can do that without a lot of orthopedic downsides. So things like uh, interval-based work where they're going to, you know, sprint hard for 20 seconds, rest for 10, or maybe some longer-based intervals for distance, like two-tenths uh, two of a mile, three-tenths of a mile, rest, let their heart rate come down. And then we'll have some people who might do things like tempo runs, uh, on the treadmill or outside in Boston when it's nice out uh, for some conditioning based work. And that's going to kind of round out the hour for kind of our average adult client who might be one of our group sessions. Absolutely. Excellent. I think it's a really interesting insight into your thought process, but obviously then how you apply that as well. So it goes from all of the, the, the maybe obvious stuff, nutrition, move well, move more through to, okay, what are we going to target strength, conditioning, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then how you're going to do that exactly within the gym, right? mobility 
important stuff there and how you then address some of the issues which uh, which people face. So absolutely excellent stuff. Um, Kevin, massive thanks for your time and effort today. It's been a pleasure talking. Where can people find a little bit more about you and what you're up to? Yep. So if you're looking for education from us, we travel all over the world with Certified Functional Strength Coach. Um, we're pretty much doing events every single week in the U.S., outside of the U.S. And so if you head to cfsc.inspire360.com, you can see all of our course offerings, live in-person workshops, as well as our online courses. If you're looking for me on social media, um, you can go to kev underscore in underscore car.com. I couldn't get my full name, um, but you can find <laughs> me. I know you're going to tag that in the show notes to be able to find me. And that's where um, any information about where we're going, what I'm doing, what's happening in MBSC, you'll be able to find that there. Perfect. So Kevin, massive thanks for your time and effort. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to speaking again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Cheers, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Kevin for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science Sport Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is an overgrowing library of sports science courses which are broken down to bite-sized chunks. So if you enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get your hands on some great sports science information, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes and you can get into the Coach Academy completely for free for the next seven days. What's more, every time you complete one of the courses, you'll get a certificate of completion which will prove your ongoing education. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me and Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.